Anybody seen one or more of those movies before? Okay, yeah. Anybody feeling very encouraged now (laughs) and uplifted? (laughs) So if you're scared to death and you don't want to get left behind, let me tell you about Jesus. Um, I don't know about you, but that's kind of some of my history and my past, and that always seems a bit incongruous to me. Um, And can we talk about how twisted it is? That like for so long, our primary method of winning people to Jesus started and ended with fear, you know, as if Jesus had nothing else to offer except the threat of dangling you over the fires of hell to get you to choose him. I mean, let's just be real. That's kind of a messed up theology. And Jesus is better than that. Can I get an amen? There we go. But I'm getting ahead of myself. There's so much to comment on on that video. First of all, Um, It was three movie clips kind of put together. It started with a movie called The Late Great Planet Earth from 1978. The second one was Left Behind, a movie so good that we needed two versions of it, one with Kirk Cameron and one with Nicolas Cage. Not sure why. And the last one was uh, called A Thief in the Night that was actually shot here in Des Moines, Iowa. Did anybody know that? In 1973. And one of the people singing that song is a current and active member of Ashworth Church right now. I will not tell you who unless you pay me money. No. Um, I'll tell you because she's not in the room now. It was Sally Rogers. Isn't that amazing? I didn't tell her she was going to be a part of the clip today. And so after the service, she was in the first service. I said, do you forgive me? (laughs) It was shot right here. But, I mean, did you notice all the predictions in those clips that have come true? Psych. You guys remember that 1980s term? Psych. See, I thought I'd throw that in for those movies there. You know, I need my parachute pants on to say that. I mean, it talked about prophetic patterns, too big to be ignored, of the Chinese army. Excuse me, Red China. I loved how they said Red China. Dangers in space, 1982. Planets are going to align. It's going to create some stuff. I think I missed it. How about you? Um, the computer is the antichrist weapon. Well, go ahead. Let me see those phones, everybody. Yep, you got the antichrist weapon right in your pocket. Shame on you. (laughs) 70% of predictions have already fallen in place. Hmm. Remember that. We're going to talk about that in a second. As I said, the middle clip was left behind. Anybody read the books left behind? Anybody want a refund for reading the books left behind? Yep, me too. I was good. I was reading. I got to about book number four. I understood they were going to make seven. And then all of a sudden it becomes popular. And oh, now we need to make 13. And I'm like, all right, now you're just money hungry. Quit that. So last one, as I said, A Thief in the Night, which was I saw in high school. My church showed it in our church worship sanctuary on a Friday night. You know, oh my goodness, a bit traumatizing to be real. Now I know some of you may be wondering, Why did we show you this? Why are we talking about this? Well, I keep an eye on social media. I hear things. I know that there's confusion around this topic. I mean, you know, Russia invades Ukraine. And we're like, that's it. Or we hear even the headline from the UK this summer. UK exceeds 40 degrees Celsius for the first time ever. Look at that headline there from the sun. Britain is melting. I mean, this has to be it, right? This is it. (laughs) What's so fascinating is that it really doesn't matter what generation you're in. Regardless of the headline, this thinking has been around for 2,000 years. 
I mean, think about even just in our generation, our parents' generation, World War I. Could you imagine being around when that happened? Do you think that wasn't going to be it? Of course you thought it was it. How about World War II? Some of you in this room may have been around and alive during that one. You think they didn't think, this is it. This is it. Where is he coming? Jesus is coming back. Israel becomes a nation. What, 1948? Who didn't think that that was the beginning? That was it. That was just look to the sky. It's got to be happening. Some political leader rises to power. What about 9-11? What about Katrina, tsunamis, climate change? We could list a million different things. And don't get me started on the 2020 presidential election where prophets came out of the woodwork to talk about the American election as if Jesus coming back was so dependent about, on what happens here in our nation. We're not that old. We're not that significant or important. Jesus isn't just waiting on us to figure this out, okay? So, I mean, I, Steve Rogers was sharing with me that in 1972, he heard a sermon where the preacher said, at most, guys, we've got 10 years left. At most, 10 years left. So max out those credit cards and let the Antichrist pay for it. <laughs> I, you know, I just, what do you do with stuff like that? I mean, but this is what is being said and things that have been done. It seems like, if you didn't know any better, that we're constantly looking at modern events with one eye reading the Bible and the other guy desperately trying to match current events with things Jesus said and understand, ah, is now the time that Jesus is coming back. And the reason I want to take a look at this is because I want to deal with fear, anxiety, misinformation, just bad theology, I think, that exists that we need to talk about to cut through the fog and say, can we find Jesus in this somewhere. Please, God, let us find Jesus in this. And this topic is everywhere. I'd forgotten about this. Um, last year, I moved offices, um, went further down the hall. When Pastor Ryan was here, he was reading something. And he came in my office one day and he said, hey, just so you know, Jesus is coming back September of 2021. And what dates? The 22nd or the 23rd. He had a date. And we were joking and laughing about it. And he said, you know what? You should write it on your calendar. So I did. I moved offices. That calendar is still up in my old office because it's not being used right now. But look at that. It says Jesus returns. And um, yeah, um, I wrote it there. And as you can tell, it didn't happen. Or did it? <gasps> now, I want to say up front, there are, a lot of top, there are a lot of differing ideas on this, a lot of differing opinion. It's the study called eschatology, the study of end times. And at Ashworth, we call this a secondary doctrine. We don't have a firm position that says you have to believe this and sign on this line so that we all line up here. The reason I'm saying this is because you may listen to me today and you may think I disagree with everything you say. And I'm just going to say, okay, my big boy pants are on. And if you want to disagree, I'm fine with that. That's okay. Um, I will tell you, eschatology, the study of end times, is not, in, not something I just run after and woohoo, let me read some more. I had to study it in my undergrad. I studied it in my master's degree work. There's probably a couple of papers out there that I would probably need to denounce by now. But um, all that to say, let's keep that in mind. 
This is probably more theological opinion than it is something we hang our hat on. And let's keep that in, in focus. But what I'd really like to do is to start today and for the next few weeks, look at this idea that the end is near. And let's see what Jesus and the Bible has to say about it. Let's try to take the fear out of it, what do you say? To see what Jesus thought about this topic, we turn to the Gospels and we see that there's a discourse written about by three of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we're going to look at Matthew's Gospel today, where it's at the end of Jesus' life and he's kind of sitting down with his disciples. He's made, some, he's made a prediction and they have some questions about it. And so he uses this as an opportunity to just kind of teach them through it. It's in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24, and let's just read right here. It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its building. So the temple is this beautiful, ornate building, huge, modern wonder of the world back then. And he asked, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left on another, and everyone will be thrown down. Now, Jesus starts strong right here. One of the most beautiful, ornate structures in the known world, Jesus is predicting, is going to be destroyed. It's going to be raised to the, to, the, to the ground. Now, this would be akin to somebody saying the White House, the Taj Mahal, the Washington Monument, some, you know, one of these significant buildings was going to be destroyed. Now, for us in our generation, not as difficult to picture, is it? Because we've seen the images of the Twin Towers in New York falling. So we have this idea that seemingly indestructible buildings could fall. But for the people then, this was the second temple. It had been destroyed before, but been rebuilt. And it took years to rebuild. And you'll see these stones, and they're massive. They're huge stones stacked on each other. And you would think, well, this is very shocking and unexpected. How is this ever going to happen? The greatest architectural wonder in the Middle East would be flattened. So rightly so, the disciples hear this, and they've got some questions for Jesus. They want some clarification. And so as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, when you look at that, it's very easy for us to assume that the disciples are asking two or three possible questions. You know, when will it happen? When will be the sign of your coming? When will be the end of the age? You can try to break those down into three, three questions. But really, that's not the case. Really, they're asking one question three different ways. They didn't think Jesus was leaving. They still weren't in a place where they thought Jesus was going anywhere. I mean, these are the guys where Jesus is like, I'm going to die. And they're like, no, you're not. That's not going to happen. So we have to understand their state of mind when they're asking the question. They're just asking the same question different ways. And the questions they're asking all have to do with one thing, Jesus reigning in power. That's what they were about. When is this going to happen? When is Israel going to rise up? When are we going to kick these dirty Romans out? When are we going to see you do what we expect the Messiah to do? That's what they're asking. That's what they want to see. And then Jesus has to kind of cut through the, that question to get to the root and to really begin to explain, well, let me tell you how this is all going to go down. So we keep reading in verse 4. It says, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. Okay, we need to probably tattoo that somewhere. Watch out that no one deceives you. That's as relevant for them as it is for us today. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. 
You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Let's read that again. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Jesus is saying, these things are going to happen. Don't let them fill you with all this fear. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginnings of birth pains. Now, this is the passage that begins to get us in a little trouble. This is where good Christians, we try our hand at divination. We try our hand at reading the tea leaves. This is where we try to make current events match what Jesus is saying in the Bible and line up to do or say something they're not actually doing. I mean, Jesus said it at the beginning. He said it, he said it here. He said, all these things are just the beginning. This isn't what's saying the end is here. So then let's keep reading. Jesus is still talking. He says, Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all the nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Oh, there it is. It's what we've been waiting for. And then the end will come. The moment we've been waiting for, or at least the moment we've been trying to predict. Clear as day, right? Jesus gives us that blueprint of what to look out for. Right? No. No. What's so fascinating is that Jesus even tells us, don't be duped. Don't be taken in by the charlatans carrying the sandwich board, ringing the bell, shouting, the end is near. It's a warning not saying, here's the blueprint. And if you look at what Jesus says, there are nine things, nine signs that he lists that are to happen that he's telling his followers not to be um, deceived about. Because as he lists these nine things, as he talks about these nine things, what you're going to see is that these are really commonplace events. There's nothing incredibly spectacular about any of them. I mean, people claiming to be the Messiah, that's, that happens. Wars and rumors of wars. When has there not been a war or a rumor of a war? International hostility. <laughs> All it takes is two people with different pieces of land and you have international hostility. Natural disasters and famines. Persecution of believers. Apostasy and hatred in the church. False prophets. Deterioration of spiritual life and the message of Jesus to all nations. You see, remember in that first video where the guy was saying 70% of all prophet, prophetic predictions have come to pass? That is wrong. By the time that video was made, 100% of prophetic predictions had come to pass. Do you know that? That in fact, all these things that Jesus talks about right here were done and completed by A.D. 70. You guys know what happened in A.D. 70? Kind of a significant event in the history of Israel the destruction of the temple. That's when Rome got tired of Israel and they said, that's it, we're, we're done. And they came in and they invaded and it was horrible and it was bloody and they destroyed the temple in the process and every one of these things that Jesus talks about was done by AD 70. Verse 34, if we were to continue reading in Matthew 24, Jesus even says, he says, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Well, unless we try to exercise some hermeneutical gymnastics here, 
where we go, well, generation there actually means age, and age means, you know, and so we're in the church generation. That's not what it means. Jesus was talking specifically to these people, to these disciples, that many of them were still around in AD 70 when all these things came to pass. And what's more, these events that Jesus described have happened time and time and time again since Jesus spoke the words. They weren't one-time events. They have been going on for the last 2,000 years. In fact, author and New Testament scholar Craig Bloomberg, he writes this, he says, There is no reason to take any of Matthew's text here as looking beyond the events that culminated in the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. That's a challenge for us, especially if we want to say, but that, what about today? It just means that since that moment, Jesus could come back at any time. Jesus is not waiting for any miraculous supernatural event to take place in this earth before he could come back, period. But the passage goes on. It's a lengthy passage. I encourage you to read it. Matthew 24, and Jesus talks about things like the abomination that causes desolation. This was something that was going to be set up in the temple that was going to be just desecrating the temple. It harkens back to the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. Again, you look at history. That has happened time and time again, even before AD 70. Fleeing to the mountains, Jesus talks about that. Jesus talks about how the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. He talks about how two men will be in a field, one will be taken and the other left behind. Two women grinding with a hand mill, one taken and the other left. And the Son of Man coming on the clouds with, of heaven with power and great glory. And you read all these things and we build this theology that says rapture left behind. But really, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus talks about his return with the typical apocalyptic imagery, not language that's be, be, to be taken literally. It's a vivid metaphor. You see, what we've done is we take the word apocalyptic, and we talk, there's lit, apocalyptic literature in the Bible, and we look at that and we go, well, that's literature talking about the end times. That's not what apocalyptic means. Apocalyptic just means to unveil, to uncover, these are the moments where God is separating the curtain to allow people, prophets, these individuals to see the things the way he sees them. Not to write a manifesto on here's three things that have to happen in this order in order for this event to occur. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's using the apocalyptic language that would have been very common then. When Jesus speaks of fleeing to the mountains, do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about the war that is about to occur when the Romans come in. And they come into your house and they come with their boots on your door in the middle of the night to rip you out of your bed because that's what armies would do. He says when this skirmish takes place, run as quick as you can. Don't stop to get a bag. Get out of the city quickly because the arm, invading army is here. When he talks about the sun and the moon crashing down, this isn't some cosmic event. In fact, this isn't the first time that language was used. This language would often be used to speak about empires crumbling, like Babylon. When Babylon fell, it would be seen as a cosmic event, the sun and moon crashing down. Two in a field and one taken? Boy, we've built an entire theology on that, haven't we? 
And we look at it and we go, oh, but somebody got left behind. Can I tell you, in this reading, left behind is the good thing. Because those who are taken are those that are taken away by the invading army or taken away to judgment. It's a statement on judgment, not rapture. It's not some supernatural salvation in that moment. And what about the Son of Man coming back in the clouds? That's the one that seems to be the one where we, he, we meet him and he takes us off and all this. Paul uses the, the same word, and he says that we will meet those that are still here will meet him in the air. But not to leave and go somewhere else. The Greek word there is parousia. Yeah, you love it when I throw in a Greek word, right? It means I've studied it this week. And what that word means is it means appearing. Appearing, like the appearing of a ruler. Jesus is not returning. He's appearing, and there's a difference. You see, because when a king or an emperor arrived, it wasn't to grab a crowd and leave. That emperor was coming to the city, and when people found out, they would break out the trumpets and the horns, and there'd be a great and mighty celebration, and a crowd would rush out to greet the ruler and usher him into the city in such an incredible celebration, not to take him off somewhere else, but to come in to the city. And when the disciples are asking about the sign of his coming, they're not talking about the second coming. They're still thinking about Jesus establishing power. Remember, this whole discourse here is taking place before the resurrection. It's before the crucifixion. These guys are still very confused about what's going on. And as Jesus talks to them, even after the resurrection, they still can't put it all together. Because in Acts chapter 1, you see the disciples ask Jesus this. They said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus has been killed, crucified, buried, and risen. And the first question they ask is, so now? Is now the time? What about now? They still can't wrap their minds around it. And Jesus, <laughs> you got to love Jesus. He just looks at him and he says, I'm sure he's scratching his head. It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It doesn't sound like we've moved very far from the disciples' original question, though, has it? Except many times today we find people that aren't saying, is it now? They're going, it is now. It is now. And then we start using the teaching of Jesus out of context to speculate and profiteer and divine and read the sign in the stars. You know, as I was reading this week, several scholars look at what Matthew said here and how his answer to the people's question. And they think that that was the purpose, that when Matthew was written, that there's a group of people, they're going through persecution. Things aren't great. They've seen the temple destroyed. And while they're going through this, their big question is this. Did we miss something? Did we miss something? Did Jesus miss something? I mean, that's a great question, isn't it? If you're going through just the absolute garbage of life, if you've seen everything torn down around you, that's a question you'd want answered. And people think, several scholars think, that's why Matthew wrote what he did, to remind them of the teaching. And while this teaching may sound eschatological, like that word, right, about the end times, the end of days, it was supposed to be taken as a pastoral warning to watch 
and to pray. And what Jesus meant to be a message of hope and encouragement, we have turned into a message of panic, manipulation, and fear. How much further away from Jesus' original meaning could we possibly get? And as you might be able to tell from some of my comments, as I said, you can disagree with this if you want, I've kind of had to leave the left, the left behind theology I've had to leave behind. I've had to kind of move on away from that in my own theology. If you disagree, that's fine. And for some people, this gives people a little heartburn. But when, let me explain a little bit about that theology for you. What I call left behind theology is actually just a cute way of describing what's called dispensationalism. It's a way of understanding the Bible. And these, this theology says that the Bible age is divided into time, seven time periods and uh, it's based on a specific way of interpreting the Bible, about how the Bible has to speak about what's to come. And this Bible, this theology states that there's coming a time where things are going to get very bad on the earth. But lucky for us, before they get really bad, Jesus is going to come and take us away. He'll rapture us out and leave behind everyone else to go through this difficult seven-year period known as the Tribulation. And it's during this time that a very real person known as the Antichrist will ascend to power and rule the world. But after the tribulation, Jesus will return again, uh, win the battle of Armageddon, lock Satan away for a thousand years, known as the millennial reign. And after a thousand years, Satan will be set free. Jesus will defeat him once again for casting him, his demons, and all those who don't follow Jesus into the lake of fire. Then there will be the new heavens, the new earth, the new creation, and all that. That's a very abbreviated understanding of dispensationalism. Forgive me, my time is short. <laughs> but here's what I want you to understand. That theology started around 1820. That for 1800 years of church history, not one person believed that. Now, there was a variation of it called premillennialism, and we'll talk about that maybe next week. But for just 200 years is how, is how long this theology has been around. And that's significant because very, very rarely do we find something that we hang our hats on so deeply to say this is it that's so new. It started with the vision of a young girl in Glasgow at a revival where she had a vision of the rapture. That was picked up by evangelists and pastors, and it worked its way in with Billy Sunday and D.L. Moody and some of these people. It became part of a study Bible called the Schofield Study Bible that really pushed that theology, and then it worked its way into some educational places like Moody Bible Institute or Dallas Theological Seminary. And they really began to push this theology, really began to send it out. And honestly, it's mostly an American phenomenon, believe it or not. <laughs> and in a small segment of American evangelicalism, this has become the dominant theology of end times. And I believe it is what every time something happens politically, a natural disaster hits, a lunar eclipse, or God forbid we call it a blood moon, or anything geopolitically happens, we begin to run around like chickens with our heads cut off, thinking, oh, this guy's falling, this guy's falling. And I wouldn't have a problem with this except for the fear that accompanies it. Now let's just take a quick poll because I'm raising my hand on this poll and I wasn't the only one in the last service. Anybody here ever had a left behind moment where you thought you were left behind? I see that hand in the sound booth, Amy. 
It's something that hits you when you are convinced Jesus has returned and you are going to go straight to hell. It is the most fear-consuming thing and panic and anxiety like you can't believe. And I understand the draw to a theology like this. Fear is an incredible motivator. <laughs> if you want people to make a decision for Jesus, all you got to do is just scare the hell out of them, right? And that'll take care of it. Um, but this theology cries out to our inner skeptic, the one looking for secret codes in the Bible, some affirmation for some of our conspiracy theories that we might have. And we want clarity. We want certainty. We want answers. And this theology seems to provide us some. We want to know the 88 reasons Jesus is coming back in 1988, a real book that was produced that the author actually said this. He said, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. I would stake my life on it. He didn't stake his life on it because he wrote the sequel in 1989 for 89 reasons Jesus will return in 89. I go back to the good old days for the Old Testament where they said if you were a prophet and you were wrong, you got stoned. You know, I think we need to go back to those days. No, I'm just kidding. I'm only kidding. Somebody's going to pull this out of this sermon. I'm going to end up on social media this week. Can you believe this pastor in Iowa said this? The guy explained his miscalculation because he said he used the wrong calendar. He used the Gregorian calendar, and he should have used the Hebrew one. You see, we don't like nuance. We want to be able to predict what will happen. But the reality is we can't. Jesus himself said only the Father knows. And think about the significance of this. Jesus being fully God, limiting his omniscience to know when the end will occur. And if Jesus doesn't know, what makes you think you do? And stop trying. Let's stop trying to figure it out. And let's stop worrying about it. We could talk about how this way of thinking doesn't even align with Jesus' own teaching in Matthew 24. Jesus said his followers are going to suffer. So you know what's a great idea? Let's create a theology that says, no, 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 you don't have to suffer. You get pulled out before that happens. Where does that even make sense? Or we could talk about the spiritual and psychological damage done by this constant fear of this doctrine that was created. Does that match the life that Jesus came to give, the freedom from bondage and fear? Or maybe we should talk about just how we've built this entire theology with America in the center of it. Good grief. Talk about arrogance and pride. I, just for the record, we're not in here. We're not. America as a nation, not in here. You're not going to find it. You, know, you can even read the Apostle Paul's letters, and it becomes very clear that even the Apostle Paul thought Jesus was going to come back during his lifetime. That should inform us. Now, let me reiterate this. You may listen to me today and you may think, you're full of garbage. Okay, <laughs> I'm fine with that. It's a secondary doctrine. Diverse opinions are okay if, if these diverse opinions magnify and lead us to Jesus, period. That's got to be the qualifier. It can't be to manipulate it can't be to control. It can't be for any other reason except to point us to Jesus. So what is the point of this message? Let me wrap this up. I want you to hear this. Number one, Jesus is coming back. I think there is not a single question about this. Jesus is coming back someday, maybe in our lifetime, maybe not. I mean, every generation thought it was in their lifetime, and one of those generations is going to be right. 
but it may not be in the way you thought. But he is coming back, so stop trying to predict it. Jesus didn't know you won't. just makes you a false prophet every time you do. The fact that Jesus comes, is coming back should not make us fearful. It should give us hope and peace. It should give us hope and peace. Don't be duped by the charlatans and the fear mongers profiting off their prediction. Let me just tell you, say that again. These people that put these predictions out there, they're making money off of them. Stop listening to them. Don't go to their YouTube channels. Don't buy their books. Don't support that. It's not worth it. <laughs> And if you look around the world, and if you see difficulties and you see suffering, if you see chaos and calamity, don't go, Jesus is coming back. Let it be a reminder to you that God is not done yet. That God is not done yet. He's still on his original mission to redeem the world and reconcile the world, and he's going to use the church to accomplish that. But it leads us to go, but why won't he, why hasn't he come back yet? What's he waiting on? I don't know. Good question. But 2 Peter tells us this. It says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Do not try to build a numeric code to figure something out there. Just a statement, okay? And then he says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why hasn't Jesus come back? Because God's not done yet. And it's in his loving kindness, his long suffering, his patience that he's holding it back. Just say, no, 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 there's a few more. There's a few more. Let them hear about Jesus. Let them come. Let me redeem. That's amazing. That's not a bad thing. That's an amazing thing. I also want you to hear this, that Jesus is coming back and we don't know when. As I said, every generation thought they were the last one. One of them's going to be right. But let's stop gazing into the crystal balls. Let's stop speculating over the latest headlines. They don't mean anything. Stop worrying about the details you can't control. And lastly, since Jesus is coming back and we don't know when, can we live lives that are ready for his return at any time? Nope, not running up credit cards, not living on the top of our roofs, you know, looking to the heavens. Just faithfully living each and every day, modeling for this crazy messed up world what a citizen of the kingdom looks like, to live as if Jesus is living right now through us because he is, and reveal that to the world. Let's don't demonize others. Let's don't create enemies out of the others, but let's live the way Jesus did, a life of constant readiness, not sucked into the latest conspiracy theory, but a discerning life that remains focused on the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And while we do that, let's bring the good news of Jesus now to this earth and show the world Jesus is better than the fear. We, if fear's all we've got to convince people to follow Jesus, I'm walking out this door today and not looking back. Jesus is better than that. What about if we live that way? And let's see what happens. Let's pray.